Welcome to Partisan Gardens. We can't wait any longer. For a tech breakthrough, climate apocalypse, the revolution, or a reform of the USDA loan system. On Partisan Gardens, we know climate catastrophe is here, and it's our food system's dead end. Here we see sustainable fine dining and ecological destruction, hunger and obesity, extreme wealth and immense poverty. We must be frank about reality to reckon with our options. We must choose sides and become partisans of a new way to live and grow food. This alternative path is already under construction. Through the experiments and struggles of food service and agricultural workers, we are figuring out how to create food systems that will nourish a livable world for us all. Partisan Gardens will feature stories from kitchen staff, new small farmers, undocumented slaughterhouse organizers, agroecology researchers, black farming cooperatives, urban gardeners, indigenous land stewards, permaculturists, and countless others exploring this field of experimentation. Let those of us who refuse to wait proceed together. The current food system has failed. And we are on the side of nourishment and care. This month, we share an ambitious two-part interview with Doug, a lifelong deserter, commune dweller, and bioregionalist organizer currently living in Western Canada. Doug is interviewed by his nephew, Guy, a contributor to a militant network of communes in the region. Doug shares invaluable recollections on the experience of living underground and in exile in Canada and Sweden while refusing U.S. military service in the Vietnam War. We're excited to share the interview due to the many lessons and resonances Doug's reflections offer for today's collective efforts at reinhabitation and resistance. Here, Guy and Doug. You talked about the alternative UN assembly and all the people from California who came funded and had all their ideas and this notion of California as the golden state. And there's at least, at least one perspective that I've seen on the counterculture in California in the 70s, 60s and 70s, and the the cybernetic ecology, ecological framework that people were operating with there that draws a really direct line from that to Silicon Valley, Ayn Rand, kind of libertarian, free market capitalist, neoliberal ideas mm -hmm. um, that said that we can have this fully balanced, self-regulating economy modeled on our computer models of an ecosystem. Uh, and so it it began in the counterculture and then became um, one of the largest centers for manufacturing wealth in the world through the, through the tech industry. And so I'm, I'm thinking about that trajectory and I'm thinking about, you were talking about the role of EST uh, in particular as, as a, a mechanism that recuperated some of the counterculture and involved people back um, into the capitalist economy and into this shift towards neoliberalism. And then I'm thinking about the role of debt um, in keeping people linked to the economy, whether they want to be or not. If you're in debt and you have a monthly mortgage to pay, you have to work and you have to find a way to turn a profit or you'll lose what you have. Mm -hmm. And so there's a way that land ownership can be liberating, but it can also trap you in the economy <laughs> even further. Um, and so those are three different topics, but they seem all, all interrelated. And I'm curious if you have any reflections or thoughts about, about them. 
You know, when Est came about, I had a bad feeling. Uh, the woman that I was in a relationship with uh, dove into it hook, line, and sinker. Uh, for her, it was, uh, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Let's just have what we want. Mm -hmm. uh, wanting something is uh, is natural, and getting it is your, your individual right. Mm -hmm. Go for it. Get it. Mm -hmm. What I saw was that it was taking away the sense of community, that we are, in, um, in a sense, we're going to survive as a group. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it was, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be an individual and get what I want because mm -hmm. I've been told it's fine. This comes around to being almost the same message that Donald Trump gave mm -hmm. to people saying, you can say and do whatever you want because I'm saying, you know, the the moral code is false. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that truth was false. It was the morality the demand of a cultural respect of one another was no longer applicable. Mm -hmm. And 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 that, unfortunately, uh, is still raging like a forest fire through America now. Mm -hmm. I can't say that I really have any wisdom on this other than I, I know in my body when uh, somebody is acting inappropriately, mm -hmm whether it's inappropriately the way they're treating their children, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the way that our family uh, system is oriented. Mm -hmm. uh, the man basically can do whatever he wants to his kids unless he uh, crosses a, uh, a pretty high bar mm -hmm. of legality. You have to have scars on the body to, to mm -hmm. say, oh, well, that was not right. But mm -hmm. the psychological scars are much more important. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure... Uh, that there is really an answer given where we are right now. Yeah. The, the problem, as I see it, is um, we don't have an insistence on manners anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, and this gets back to the cultural problem. Mm -hmm. um, when I look at um, the people that uh, went from being hippies to yuppies, mm -hmm. I mean, that's yeah. basically what happened. Uh, they got inheritances and said, I'm not going to share any of this. This belongs to my family. I can do whatever I want with it. Mm -hmm. So immediately went out and bought a new car, mm -hmm. uh, immediately moved off the commune and uh, got a, a down payment on the house and mm -hmm. uh, had all the, you know, the middle class amenities that they had denied themselves for the last few years. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're situated in a in a society that's decided it's 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 okay to use uh, plumbing systems that basically take all of our and put it into a common treatment plant mm -hmm. and use flush toilets and use clean water to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, this is uh, an outmoded uh, way of dealing with uh, dealing with waste. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a bigger problem than recycling in many ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, plastic is killing us, mm -hmm. but it's our idea of how things should be organized that's killing us even more. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we can design computers mm -hmm. that generate the kind of wealth that, uh, that, that we see going on, mm -hmm. and we cannot fix and redesign infrastructure, mm -hmm. there's no hope. Mm -hmm. 
you know, if we can't take these good minds and put them to the social purpose rather than the individual right, mm -hmm. there's no hope. Mm -hmm. we're, we're boxed in. Mm -hmm. Our celebration of the individual and the permission to not have social manners mm -hmm. is basically intolerable. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's no longer me living underground in a, in a wilderness cabin that keeps me safe. Mm -hmm. It's now finding people who I can actually physically uh, tolerate being with mm -hmm. because they have manners. Mm -hmm. And I don't see it very often. Yeah. How many people can you say are raising their children in a way that is going to give them the freedom to have good lives? Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about university educations. Yeah. You know, we know what the university is based on. And it's a it's a suppression of truth. Mm -hmm. You know, we have science, but science is being honed in on supplying corporate needs mm -hmm. and giving the war economy the validity mm -hmm. to invent faster than the enemy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is just not uh, a world that I feel comfortable in. Yeah. And I want to feel comfortable. I want to be able to, to come up to a friend of mine and sit in some silence once in a while mm -hmm. without having to talk about all the terrible shit that we're experiencing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, where do we, where do we actually uh, offer each other the real comfort mm -hmm. of a human coexistence? A willingness to take some responsibility, even if it's just for one tree, mm -hmm. that I'm going to say that that tree is as valuable in its life mm -hmm. because it's going to live longer than me. Mm -hmm. That I will say, tree, please keep giving us the oxygen that we're going to need. Mm -hmm. And this is a this is a message that uh, the common uh, media. Uh, will give a little bit of airplay to, mm -hmm. but it's a couple of seconds compared to talking about what's going on in the Ukraine. Yeah. We've talked some about the bioregional movement and the back to the land movement. Um, and I'm curious to hear your reflections on how the early back to the land movement engaged with indigenous people and decolonization. Um, and then how that's changed over the last 50 or 60 years, especially in the last couple of years as decolonization or land back has become a much more potent and outspoken force. Well, I think when you think of um, my generation in their teens and early 20s, um, so-called dropping out or looking for a way back onto the land, the, the central awareness was that uh, the morality of the conventional dominant society had failed us. Mm -hmm. We didn't have a... Uh, we didn't have a way to go into morals in which we felt that we had um, a right to be human. Mm -hmm. We were more put into uh, roles where we were going to be workers 
or um, subservience mm -hmm. to any number of, of power structures. And it was that rejection of the power structures uh, to control our lives mm -hmm. that we wanted to throw off. Where the indigenous part came in was that we instinctively almost had the feeling that the indigenous people possessed a dignity mm -hmm. that was residual, that somehow, although everything had been taken away from them, they had retained a sense of self mm -hmm. that was based on uh, values uh, that were not embedded at all in the dominant society. Mm -hmm. And so, in a way, adopting the indigenous uh, behaviors or appearances was just a way of saying, um, I need to transition away and I don't have anything to envision mm -hmm. what I'm in going to. Mm -hmm. I can't envision anything to go towards. Mm -hmm. Science fiction didn't offer anything that was on the ground. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you look at uh, the pioneer spirit, I mean, that was soiled. Mm -hmm. It was soiled by the awareness that it was based on theft. Mm -hmm. So um, e even though it was not a good fit for a lot of people, at least saying that you had a way of honoring an indigenous uh, existence mm -hmm. was postulating that there was something worth going towards mm -hmm. that you could um, aim for as you stepped away from what was uh, imprisoning you. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> I think in the early days, the, the indigenous people that I contacted had an awareness that this was happening. Mm -hmm. And they were somewhat amused, mm -hmm. but at the same time, they didn't have uh, the same kind of protectiveness that you find in in today's world where they say, well, they're stealing our culture, they're stealing our religion, mm -hmm. they stole our land, now they want our, our spirit. Mm -hmm. uh, the Native people that I interacted with were just sort of pleased mm -hmm. that... I wasn't actually there to take something more away from them, but I wanted to learn from them. Mm -hmm. And I think that flattered them to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. um, I was, once again, I was lucky that I spent a lot of time in Alaska mm -hmm. and the North where uh, there was much more of an intact uh, preservation of culture. Mm -hmm. They had been spared uh, some <clears throat> contact Mm -hmm. And I met people that had never even seen a white person until they were in their 30s and 40s. Mm -hmm. And now they were in older years, but um, they still remembered what it was like uh, to to have a, uh, somebody come in. And, um, and at first, uh, the people were traveling through and not, not there to take. Mm -hmm. Alaska's a big place, and... and uh, it took a long time for the uh, all the goodies to be gathered. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of the indigenous people, and I've spent a lot of time in my life within communities, working for them or being uh, being there because uh, it was just easier to be there than not. Mm -hmm. It's much more complicated, but I found that uh, if you weren't there to demand 
something immediately and just spent some time, uh, people would be uh, friendly mm -hmm. and you could, you could form friendships. Mm -hmm. As time went by and I began to work directly for the tribes and take their, uh, their side on economic battles, and became a professional uh, environmental science in their employee. Mm -hmm. I learned to not push myself so hard. If I was going to be giving a report to council, I learned to watch for cues as to, okay, now it's time to just shut up. Mm -hmm. And if nobody says anything for a few minutes, don't feel like I have to jump in there and, and, and explain more, mm -hmm. but to allow them to process it. Mm -hmm. And eventually somebody would shift in their position at the table and look at someone over across the way and say, are you going to pick this one up? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it was like saying, you're going to have to work with this guy. Mm -hmm. Are you ready for that? Mm -hmm. And then maybe the person would accept it or deny it, but... Mm -hmm. Pretty soon there would be somebody that was delegated to uh, uh, come away from the meeting mm -hmm. and spend some time with me and, and, and talk about, you know, what it was that I was trying to communicate. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of effort to just keep quiet mm -hmm. when minute by minute by minute is ticking by mm -hmm. and people are essentially just sort of feeling each other out without talking. Mm -hmm about, okay, is this really important for us right now? Do we have to deal with this? Mm -hmm. Or can we just give them another month to come back again? Mm -hmm. That was a big lesson for me. Yeah. And it, it coincided with working with collective economics and co-housing and... Um, collaborating on taking care of lands like land trusts and communities mm -hmm. where, like I said, consensus requires that you listen a lot more than talk. Mm -hmm. And these things kind of fed back on each other a little bit. And although I'm talking a lot now, uh, I can say that I did learn uh, how to be quiet. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and sometimes that's the very best thing you can do because it's a surprise when all of a sudden you realize that you were understood perfectly. Mm -hmm. They just didn't know what to do with what you were saying. Mm -hmm. And then it would occur to someone that they actually had something relevant to reply with, but they had to really search for it. Mm -hmm. uh, time and again, when we were talking about, um, oh, hunting, uh, for example, um, dealing with the Fish and Wildlife Service, we had to get permits to, uh, to go out and take um, birds for ceremonial purposes. Mm -hmm. Puffin beaks are used ceremonially mm -hmm. as rattles. Mm -hmm. But to get them, you have to go on to a federal bird sanctuary mm -hmm. and have a permit to take a few. Mm -hmm. uh, likewise, uh, the best uh, mountain goat hair mm -hmm. is available in the spring before shedding. So 
instead of having to fall hunt for meat, which is done by uh, state fish and game uh, management, mm -hmm. you have to get a special permit to go out and mm -hmm. harvest a mountain goat mm -hmm. to be able to use the uh, the mountain goat hair for a uh, weaving. Mm -hmm. And some of these mountain goat weavings uh, that are preserved for hundreds of years mm -hmm. are actually uh, functioning as deeds. Mm -hmm. So a mountain goat blanket will embed it in the blanket will be a permit for a, a house or a, a clan of people mm -hmm. that says from this point on that shoreline to that point on that shoreline, these people have the right to exclude everybody from harvesting there unless it's by invitation or special permit. Mm -hmm. And of course, to be able to replace those or to build new ones, uh, you have to be able to get the right kind of, of hair, which is the long-stranded winter coat. Mm -hmm. So we had guys who were specialized in going out and hunting mountain goats to provide that resource. Um, and to be able to even explain that that's needed to a bureaucrat requires uh, them to accept uh, some things they're not used to accepting. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you look at the, the value of regalia to people who have had it in their family for generations mm -hmm. and their desire to keep certain things secret that have been passed down in secrecy, mm -hmm. sometimes uh, I can remember being called in as a, an expert witness in a water rights case mm -hmm. where the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission wanted to subpoena an elder to testify as to why he said that he had a sacred right. Mm. And you had to explain that that was protected by not only an agreement in the tribe that that elder had special rights, mm -hmm. but that that regalia had been officially protected by the Forest Service mm -hmm. from being intervened in mm -hmm. by an authority. Mm -hmm. But as the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission had statutory judicial responsibilities, mm -hmm. they were bureaucratically above the Forest Service. Mm -hmm. And so they would say to the Forest Service, you have to prove that this is in fact the truth. Mm -hmm. And in that case, the Forest Service said, no, we have a sworn agreement with these people mm -hmm. that we will not reveal the secrets that they have entrusted us with. Yeah. And so you then you see this fight going on between agencies, mm -hmm. and it almost becomes a, a comedy, mm -hmm. you know, because there's yeah. such a lack of understanding at such a high level. Yeah. You have no way to penetrate that especially when they think they have exclusive authority under the law. Mm -hmm. And the very fact of that sacred resource denies their authority mm -hmm. because it exists in another universe, mm -hmm. another generation yeah. on a different piece of land. Yeah. So, you know, how do you, um, I mean, you can sit a bureaucrat down in a council meeting mm -hmm. And ask them to listen to what's going on. Yeah. And watch, and within five minutes, they have their cell phone out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's an admission of failure, you know, to, to, to be a of divided mind in a place where everybody is seeking one mind mm -hmm. makes it 
a position of you you can't you can't make the synapse work. Mm-hmm. That nerve on the other side is dead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't really have a good way of explaining it because uh, a lot of it, as I said, comes through experience. You have to yeah. sit there for a while yeah. and learn to listen. Yeah. And that's not something that a lawyer or a bureaucrat is going to be willing to do. Mm-hmm. That's all I can say about it. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that kind of is is a good segue into one of the other questions that I wanted to ask you about, which is, um, you know, you've been involved in various subcultures and the counterculture. You've lived underground. You've lived on all of these different communes and have a very deep critique of the state and of these bureaucracies um, and are aware of the dangers of the institutions. Um, and at the same time, you've also worked as a ecologist and a fish biologist, and you've worked for a number of different tribes and interfaced with local governments and federal governments mm-hmm. on these issues. And I think one of the one of the things that a lot of people in my generation are facing in more radical milieus is realizing that we need the scientists and we need the people with technical expertise, not just the people who said, oh, we hate all of this and so we're dropping out. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are also dangers that come with tying oneself too closely to these institutions. And I'm curious how, what your experience has been with navigating both institutions of academia and also of, of different scales of government as you've, you've worked on fishing rights issues mm-hmm. and other water management issues. You know, um, <clears throat> I spent a lot of time in university when I was in my 20s and early 30s and then um, I had a house burned down in which my research notes were uh, were held. And I said, oh, well, to hell with it. I'm just going to go fishing. Mm-hmm. And I did for about a dozen years. Mm-hmm. And then because I had uh, hurt myself, I decided to go back and finally finish a, a master's degree in science. Mm-hmm. And I, I really didn't complete that until I was 49. Mm-hmm. But when I went back, I I sat as a student in classes that were teaching me fisheries management. Mm -hmm. And it was all statistics and modeling. And and the guy who was teaching the course was clearly 10 or 15 years younger than me. Mm -hmm. And I asked him at one point how much sea time he had. Mm -hmm. And he said, no, he didn't have any sea time. Mm -hmm. In fact, he had never done any commercial fishing at all. Mm -hmm. But he was perfectly comfortable with the fact that he'd studied it enough that he knew what was going on. Yeah. And I I challenged that. Mm -hmm. You know, I I challenged him to say, uh, you know, things happen that are unexpected. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have experience, you really don't know what you're going to be able to do to to correct the situation. And as a result, I managed to get two years where I was co-teaching that course. Mm -hmm. But to do that, I had to also show that I was adept in the science, the mathematics, and the statistics. Mm -hmm. And I did manage to do that, but um, in so doing, I always retained a a self-critical kind of perspective. Mm -hmm. And because I was fishing as I went to pay for my education, I was in with fishermen who had way more experience than I did, Mm -hmm. although sometimes I did fish with guys that had less. 
But the thing is, um, you know, when you look at the uh, expertise of science, and it is incredible how how fast it's going and what the research tools are bringing, uh, it's it's wonderful, really, to know how much we actually know now. The problem is that the management hasn't kept up with that at all, and in Mm -hmm. fact doesn't even try. And in Canada, where I was working for a while, we had a government that was actually taking the data and destroying it Mm. because they didn't like what the data was able to say. Mm -hmm. And they went to the point where they were actually telling scientists in the fisheries departments that they could not talk with one another. Wow. They were Mm -hmm. putting barriers between disciplines Mm -hmm. to control the amount of damage that it was doing to the the government credibility. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, those kinds of strategies are still being exercised by the old school. Yeah. So when you look at the, the structure of an academy and how it interacts with the government, too often the government managers are just cherry-picking what they want to hear. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the institutions, too often the heads of departments are playing favorites depending on who's supporting their pet theories. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not science. That's mm-hmm. uh, control. Mm-hmm. Uh, in an open dialogue where people are free to, to, to say what they know and what they think and what they'd like to have the question to be, mm-hmm. the uh, fair play of science can bring enormous rewards. Mm-hmm. The problem is it's not very often that that happens. Yeah. And in the way of how journals are edited, and I know people who are publishing all the time and are doing really good work, mm-hmm. but they they have really have to fight mm-hmm. to have the best of their voices included in some of the articles because it challenges the dogma. Mm-hmm. And that gets back to, you know, we've been talking about this book, The New History of, of Everything, mm-hmm. That whole book is basically one 500-and-odd-page challenge Mm -hmm. to the existing dogma. Yeah. It's interesting to think about knowledge production also, and and I I don't have the numbers, the exact numbers anymore, but I I read an article recently that was just looking at the, the number of scientific or academic articles that are now produced and published and the number of them that are never read Mm -hmm. Um, and this kind of vast knowledge producing machine that's not linked to material reality or affecting people or influencing people at all. Yeah, we live in a time where um, the rare generalist is somebody that's really needed Mm -hmm. and the scientist who is at the top of his game who can actually provide a synthesis Mm -hmm. of the discipline at a certain point in time Mm -hmm. is, uh, that's a rare and very, very valuable individual. Mm -hmm. The people who are just propagating uh, more information and better uh, descriptions, they're providing a lot of value too, but how is this actually integrated? And I'm not a person that's, adept enough with computers Mm -hmm. to know the answer. But I do know that a lot of the 
use of computers is not doing what's needed. Mm -hmm. Because if it was, we would be a lot better off. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure how the economy manages to get a chokehold on anything that's going to challenge their um, their interests, mm -hmm. but I sure see it happening a lot. Yeah. I met a guy on a ferry going to Alaska who had, um, he, he was an Austrian, and his company, which was medical use of lasers, mm -hmm. had been bought by a San Francisco firm. And he was just an employee, but the terms of the sale was that he would be transferred to California for two years mm -hmm. to work for the new company. Mm -hmm. He was doing research, cutting-edge research, on how to use lasers in surgery. Mm -hmm. The company that bought him transferred all of his information and talents into providing uh, diagrams and embedded, basically, fancy covers mm -hmm. for cell phones. Mm -hmm. And he said that he was, yeah. he was at the end of his two-year tenure, and his wife loved California, liked the lifestyle, and wanted to stay. Yeah. But he was so embarrassed that he had thrown his career away for, you know, a pittance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And wanted to go back to Austria and do what he was trained to do. Yeah. And we talked for the better part of a day. And, and I mm -hmm. think he did go back to Austria. I, yeah. I hope to think that he did. Yeah. Even though he would be sacrificing a huge amount of his income mm -hmm. to do that. Yeah. And, and, I, and that's the co-option that happens all the time mm -hmm. in pursuit of a higher salary. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I'm, I'm not sure um, how to express it, but I do know that by forfeiting most of the income that I could have had, mm -hmm. I got to do jobs that I enjoyed. Yeah. So you were just mentioning the new book by David Graeber and David Wingrow, the, the Dawn of Everything, which you've read mm -hmm. um, twice now or one and a half times um, pretty deeply. And, and I think that a lot of what they're doing touches on what we've been talking about, but I'm curious if there are particular elements from that book that you found particularly um, profound or useful for understanding either the past 50, 60 years of the counterculture or for thinking about possibilities in the present moment. The thing that caught me first was the dialogue between these two men <clears throat> was conversational. And it was evident that they deeply respected one another. Mm -hmm. And what intrigued me so much was it transferred into um, a deep respect for the reader. Mm -hmm. I felt when I was reading their book that they were saying to me, we invite you to the dialogue. Mm -hmm. And we feel that it's necessary that this dialogue take place. Mm -hmm. So we're going to provide you with our insights, but there's uh, obviously so much that needs to be changed that we would welcome your insights as well. Mm -hmm. And that's what hooked me. Yeah. You know, the fact that they were providing a, um, a vast amount of their research and experience in archaeology and anthropology mm -hmm. that's covering 5,000 years of human history mm -hmm. and just saying it's almost like a spark in the darkness. Here's one that we're going to throw out mm -hmm. as an insight that we've gotten. Mm -hmm. And after a while, the sparks happened often enough that you started to see the stuff that was around it. Mm -hmm. and, and what 
I found was so valuable was that they would show after a hundred pages how what they had just experienced in sharing with you was now relevant in these other disciplines. And so they were providing a true synthesis Mm -hmm. of information. Mm -hmm. And that's so rare and so valuable. Mm -hmm. So the content, uh, a lot of the stuff was um, archaeological information that had happened just in the last few years in terms of assimilating how much more information we had on uh, pre-European civilizations. Mm -hmm. And so-called hunter-gatherers Mm-hmm. who had societies that were actually very sophisticated. Mm-hmm. So the problem, as I see it, is that we're so caught up in a duality mm-hmm. of concept that's based on you know European versus the rest of the world, European, non-European, mm-hmm. that our European background is almost like a set of handcuffs mm-hmm. that doesn't allow us to touch a lot of the other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I was fortunate in meeting Margaret Mead a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was a, a big heavy woman that wore a red cape when I knew her. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had a habit of putting her tongue out. Mm-hmm. As she was talking, she would stop and put her tongue out. Mm-hmm. Not all the way out, but just bulge it. Mm-hmm. And at one point, I... Uh, I got my my courage and said, why do you do that? Mm -hmm. And she said, well, she had learned when she was doing work with Islanders Mm -hmm. that you can actually uh, receive uh, sensory information through your tongue. Mm -hmm. And you can check out the vibes of, you know, you can tell the people that are actually sincerely interested in you and the ones that are just pretending. I thought, wow. (laughs) You know, Uh she's not just doing this out of some tick mm-hmm. it's 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 a it's a purposeful activity that she's yeah. consciously doing yeah and you know there's an example of taking indigenous skill mm-hmm. back into an academic european uh background mm-hmm. and using it to self-preserve mm-hmm. yeah and i thought well um well why don't more people know about this yeah and I guess it, nobody had asked her recently. Mm-hmm. You know, she was uh, on the stage in Stockholm in, in 1972 where she was talking about her understandings of, of humanity. And there were some <clears throat> um, anti-American, anti-Vietnam people there that were there to heckle her. Mm-hmm. And they were trying to drown out her, her talk because mm-hmm. she was American. Mm-hmm. And at one point, the... Uh, the moderator just stopped everything. She said, and, and said to Margaret Mead, do you wish to reply to these people anything? And she said, yes, mm-hmm. I'll not deal in hate. Mm-hmm. That's all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So once again, I got, I, I, I got the ability to ask her four years later mm-hmm. in Vancouver at the United Nations Conference on the Human Environment. Mm-hmm. And I reminded her, I said, this is what was happening last time when we were talking to the alternative. Yeah. Now you're here again. Can you explain why you said that? Mm-hmm. And she says, very simple. You're not able to communicate if you're coming at it from a point of view that you're at war with the person. So in other words, 
the dialogue is not present. It's mm -hmm. just uh, an argument. Mm -hmm. And the argument's not going to be successful because everybody's entrenched. Mm -hmm. So um, I really felt good yeah. about having that opportunity to uh, reconnect with her and, and do a little bit of feedback and embellish uh, that statement. Because I think even though in 1976, mm -hmm. the Vietnam conflict had come to pretty much of an end, mm -hmm. Uh, the hate and lack of respect mm -hmm. continued, and my point would be that it continues today. Mm -hmm. That's really fascinating. I'm thinking about the dawn of everything still, and also thinking about a comment that you you just made a little bit earlier about the sheep hair and the way that deeds in these tribes up in, in northern BC or in Alaska kept track and kept records of traditional hunting or gathering grounds and who was allowed to access them and 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 this difference between clearly delineated private property and a usufruct or another way of saying that this is land that is held in common and certain kinds of people can do certain kinds of activities here and they may overlap and there may be different people different families who can use the land in different ways. Um, and I think that that notion of a different understanding of property or of land also comes through in, in the dawn of everything as they look at these different societies. Uh, and I'm wondering if you have more, more reflections on that. Well, it's, it's dangerous territory to, to talk about indigenous societies as being ideal because mm -hmm. Obviously, there was a lot of warfare. Mm -hmm. There was uh, capture of slaves. Mm -hmm. uh, there were tribes that were um, at war with each other for generations. Mm -hmm. And it was a territorial uh, protection. Mm -hmm. You know, people had um, forts that they mm -hmm. retreated to. Mm -hmm. I've read histories of 800 canoes going up against 500 canoes. Mm -hmm. And the 500 canoes won that battle mm -hmm. because they had better strategy. Mm -hmm. This is something that would be um, appropriate for military academy like West Point to study mm -hmm. uh, how they did that with Stone Age weapons. Mm -hmm. um, the thing is, um, you know, when I when I think about where we are now. The whole idea of what is um, allowed mm -hmm. is that um, in terms of fencing off private property and holding that as the main key for our economic existence mm -hmm. and looking at another way of looking at things where the commons or the uh, nature that people experience as they travel mm -hmm. or as they live is not something that gets fenced off uh, in a territorial way, but you do have an enclave where people live that they do protect. Mm -hmm. um, and it's the, it's the spatial change mm -hmm. of how you adapt and experience the, the place that you can actually uh, travel within mm -hmm or that you can encounter people who are traveling through from other places mm -hmm. and uh, interact and learn from them. Mm 
Mm -hmm. And because these are such diametrically opposed worldviews, mm -hmm. you know, how can we talk about decolonization when what we are experiencing is probably one of the most aggressive expressions of protective colonialization that's ever occurred? Mm -hmm. We are living in a time of extreme colonialization mm -hmm. based on the rights of private property ownership. Mm -hmm. And that... Um, so how can we talk about decolonizing a system, well, for example, in Canada, where quite often 90% of the land is owned by the crown? Mm -hmm. And it, it is there because the responsibilities of the crown have been denied for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. You go back to the proclamation of 1763 by King George mm -hmm. that said you cannot take land away from uh, native communities without negotiating mm -hmm. with them. Mm -hmm. And uh, that proclamation was avoided. Mm -hmm. uh, you look at the beginning of the province of British Columbia when uh, James Douglas was trying to honor the fact that a treaty had to be made with people before the land was open for settlement. Mm -hmm. And he came at it from his experience being a Hudson's Bay uh, agent mm -hmm. into being the governor of Vancouver Island. Mm -hmm. Well, once British Columbia was transferred into uh, being part of the Federation of Canada, mm -hmm. the new governor was named Trutch, Joseph Trutch. Mm -hmm. And he basically threw out all of the requirements mm -hmm. to negotiate and basically just said, well, we'll give these people uh, a postage stamp and a postage stamp and a postage stamp. Mm -hmm. And if if they have uh, medical problems, like 90% uh, of people being wiped out by smallpox, for example, mm -hmm. we'll just take most of the land back, even mm -hmm. though it's a tiny bit. Yeah. And they proceeded to do that for decades mm -hmm. yeah. and, and falsify... Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of records as they did that. Mm -hmm. This is all written down. It's all documented. Mm -hmm. Decolonization should not be a complicated thing. Mm -hmm. Land back should not be a complicated thing, except who in the hell would you give the land back to mm -hmm. after generations of, of, uh, of holding them essentially as prisoners and taking their kids away? Mm -hmm. um, we have a legal system that's based on colonial authority. Mm -hmm. and it, it exists exactly doing what it's been doing mm -hmm. for all these generations. Mm -hmm. And the legal system is not being re repurposed. Mm -hmm. There are indigenous people getting degrees in law now mm -hmm. and are, are, are writing pretty good books about the difference between their legal system, which they had, mm -hmm. and the institutional legal system that we live under. Mm -hmm. And those things are being looked at by people who say, oh, this, this is interesting, makes a lot of sense. But there's no purchase in the uh, mm -hmm. activities. Yeah. And so um, you have a lot of good talk at the government level and then actually no action. Mm -hmm. Same thing as with climate change. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a failure of, of government responsibility mm -hmm. um, across the board. Mm -hmm. How can you um, decolonize something or even pretend that it's possible mm -hmm. while you're telling everybody that the 
police are going to enforce it down to the last penny mm -hmm. to protect the rich. Yeah. That, that's the problem. Yeah. And sometimes the problems are too simple to be able to approach. Mm -hmm. how, how, can you, how can you approach a situation like that which is so completely, obviously unfair, illegal, and immoral? Mm -hmm. without admitting that it's illegal and immoral. Yeah. They're, you know. Yeah, and, but, but admitting that puts, means that people have to confront the fear of losing what they think is theirs now, which is stolen. Yes. Um, yeah. And so it's easy to to have high ideals and hard when people say, but this is mine and I worked for it and I have all these mortgages that I took out and I deserve this. I deserve mm -hmm. to keep it. Or on the other hand, it was my great-grandfather that came here and, and made this farm and this farm is now uh, a beautiful thing that has been created by his hand mm -hmm. um, and has nothing to look like its original mm -hmm forest mm -hmm. and that forest actually could have been a uh, hundreds and hundreds of year old garden yeah that those people had maintained with their knowledge of how to manipulate fire and uh, and water mm -hmm. and uh, and 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 plant different things that were advantageous for them mm -hmm. which when the settlers came they just looked at it and saw oh this is wilderness mm -hmm. it's like trampling into somebody's backyard and, and standing in their carrot patch and walking all over the carrots and saying, mm -hmm. this land is no good. Yeah. It doesn't have a house on it. Yeah. I'm going to get it so that I can put a house on it. Yeah. And to hell with the carrots. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much mm -hmm. what happened. Yeah. 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 And, and here we are now in the 21st century and, it's clear that American society is already frayed and, and crumbling um, and that the systems that we've all been depending on are, are not resilient to climate change or to economic collapse and we can't even man, manage a, to navigate a pandemic. Um, and, and then there are people who see all of this and who are trying to live differently uh, and trying to carve out enclaves where they can care for each other um and and i think a lot of people listening to this radio show are probably in that category of people mm -hmm. who see the catastrophe and realize that the scale is too large for any of us to actually <laughs> to manage mm -hmm. um and yet we're living through it and we, we need to continue living through it and there mm -hmm. there are maybe more virtuous or less virtuous ways to do that I think it brings us back into a full circle to the idea of bioregionalism that uh, we have to build culture. Mm -hmm. We have to admit that manners are important. Mm -hmm. We have to admit that tolerance is exceedingly necessary. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to admit that uh, uh, taking too much is a sin mm -hmm. and that uh, the most sinful people uh, have to be brought to task, mm -hmm. i.e. Elon Musk or whoever, mm -hmm. Ted Turner. Yeah. Uh, how come Ted Turner has to say over over a million acres of land mm -hmm. in a state that denied that 
indigenous people had anything yeah. worth preserving. Yeah. I mean, let's let's call it for what it is. Mm -hmm. It's excessive. Yeah. So, um, you know, the only time I really got enthusiastic about politics uh, happened recently. Mm -hmm. And I was totally for Bernie Sanders, although I'm not even a U.S. citizen. Mm -hmm. I was once, I renounced that. Mm -hmm. as just a moral way of saying that uh, it excused my own activity of walking away from a patriotic duty that I didn't accept was, was valid. Mm -hmm. But Bernie uh, spoke to me, mm -hmm. and he spoke to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And why he got thrown out, I think, needs to be researched and explained mm -hmm. so that it's it's evident to people what happened. Yeah. Because we actually lost any semblance of democracy, I think. Mm -hmm. And once again, if you can't have politics that work, mm -hmm. you have to fall back on community and culture. Mm -hmm. We can own that if we will accept the responsibility for it. Mm -hmm. But as far as accepting responsibility for uh, first-past-the-post voting results, mm -hmm. uh, when they're being so manipulated today, mm -hmm. that's not uh, democracy. Yeah. So let's quit calling it that. Mm -hmm. I, I'm treading on ground here that I really uh, don't have much uh, authority on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's ground that I... Scamper away from anyway. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Doug, thank you so much for your time and for for sharing these stories and this knowledge. Um, do you have any any parting thoughts to leave people with? Uh, give the young a chance. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that are going to have to do the correction. Yeah. If you're my age. Uh, Figure out something that's valuable that you can give away. Yeah. And and give it to somebody that deserves it. Mm -hmm. And if you're a person that actually controls a lot of stuff that you know is stolen, uh, try and find out who it might actually still belong to and, and, and try and make reparations. Mm -hmm. that, that's the only thing I can think of. This has been Partisan Gardens. On this program, we are going to look at the world through the lens of food. We will speak directly to those with their hands in the dirt. But also to those in all sectors of the food world. To the servers and those being served. To the history of food in this country and beyond. We will focus on understanding the systemic problems in our food industry, including food scarcity and racism. We want to talk to you too. Please write us at partisangardens at wfhb.org and we will be in touch.